0: Have you ever found yourself reading the Wikipedia synopsis of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre because you're too scared to watch it for yourself, but you're just so curious? What about The Conjuring? In the name of Jesus Christ,
1: I command you to reveal yourself!
0: I can't even imagine how anyone can watch this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Each week on Too Scary Didn't Watch, we recap horror films for all the scaredy cats out there. With help from special guests like armchair experts Monica Padman. The Ring is the movie that I remember being like, I can hardly contain, like I'm so scared. A funny feeling host, Betsy Sidaro. It's my favorite thing
2: to just... Scream horror movie plots at people.
0: <laughs> we love it. It's our favorite thing, too. It's so much fun. <laughs> New episodes of Too Scary Didn't Watch are released every Wednesday and are available wherever you get your podcasts or at tooscarydidntwatch.com.
2: Stay up to date on the latest from Heidi Ellen's story. Make sure you subscribe, download, follow, and rate Peoples for the People on... Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts.
0: But the big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen?
2: We are hearing from
1: the family of Heidi Allen for the very first time. A snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning
2: when Heidi made her last transaction. The family of Heidi Allen of Oswego County says the new details on her kidnapping and presumed death. Many in the Oswego community believe he and his brother Gary
0: were responsible for Heidi Allen's disappearance.
1: 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen. I've
3: been in this room
4: from day one is, you know, there's nothing else I can like, say. Like, yeah. All I know is they ended up chopping
3: her up. What do you think happened to Heidi? What was
4: done with her body?
5: The
0: thing the thing was, there wasn't really any hard
5: evidence at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even, they didn't even bring her in seven, we said, Gary, you killed this girl, didn't you? And he stopped a lot. He said,
1: maybe I did, maybe I didn't.
6: You'll never know.
2: This is the story of Heidi Allen, the 18-year-old convenience store clerk who mysteriously vanished on Easter morning in 1994. The information you hear in this podcast comes directly from original court documents, police reports, witness statements, and recorded interviews. And if you're just joining us, stop and listen to the first four episodes. As Gary's fight for innocence was all but over, questions about Heidi's kidnapping still loomed over the Oswego community. And many of those questions stemmed from the ramblings of one Michael Bohrer. This is Peebles for the People, and I'm Alex Peebles.
4: I don't know what the world's been missing, but I think we need a miracle. I'm tired. What do you know about the Heidi Allen case? That it's different from what everybody else thinks. And you have to kind of start with Mark Hall. And what's your name? Michael Bohr
2: Bohr found himself wrapped up in Heidi's kidnapping from the very beginning. From the post office calling in a lead about mail piling up at his P.O. box immediately following her vanishing, to his sporadic ramblings throughout the community, which landed him... An interview with the FBI in February of 1995. In that interview, Bohr told federal agents his theories about what happened to Heidi. But where were these theories coming from? And more importantly, why did he feel the need to insert himself into the middle of this case? To get a full picture, we have to turn the clocks way back and look into Bohr's past. According to his ex-wife, Bohr was abandoned by his biological mother at birth. He and another young boy named John were adopted by Gloria and Ralph Bohr from a Canadian orphanage. The Bohr family was already a large family, as Gloria and Ralph already had three biological children and one adopted child. The addition of Michael and John to the family truly made it a full house. And with the full house, came friction. Growing up, Michael and John created a bond that wasn't present with their other siblings. The two brothers really never fit in with the rest of the family, which made their bond even stronger. As the two black sheep of the family, the brothers found themselves getting into trouble. In an interview with John O'Brien, Michael's brother John Bohr said that Michael tried to burn down the family house and... That Michael molested their sisters while they were sleeping. As you're listening to clips from that interview, you may notice that John Bohr is having trouble speaking. That's because he suffered a stroke. What?
4: Did weird stuff, you know? Yeah. He tried to burn down the house of uh, where we lived in Pennsylvania, Media. He told me somebody, you know, you know, he was trying to tell me that it was, this is, he wanted me to do the same thing. He, what he was doing, you know, healing right. them up, you know, oh. for the sleep and everything. And, uh...
2: As time went on, the tension between the two brothers and the rest of the family grew. After high school, Michael left home and joined the Marines, effectively ending the relationship with all of his adoptive family except for John, In 1975, after his service in the Marines, Bohr settled down in Milwaukee, married his high school sweetheart, and had two daughters. He found himself working at IBM to support his family. On the surface, everything seemed to be going exactly right for Bohr. His brother John even moved into the basement to be part of the family. But within the home, Michael's rage, fueled by alcohol, began to tear the family apart. According to his ex-wife, from the time their daughters were young, they were targets of Bohr's booze-filled rage. During these episodes, he was known to pull out his belt on them. And according to his brother John, the abuse that Michael inflicted on his daughters didn't stop with his belt. Unfortunately, Bohr's daughters weren't the only ones who became targets of his impulses. On June 4th, 1980, Bohr was arrested for disorderly conduct after running Vicky Tomaszewski off the road. According to the police report, Bohr tried to run Tomaszewski off the road multiple times. When Tomaszewski stopped at a stop sign, Bohr got out of his vehicle, walked up to hers, and began pounding on her window while he tried to force open her door. Tomaszewski drove directly to the police station, got out of her vehicle, and pointed Bohr out to police. After he already drove by, Bohr made a u-turn and slowly drove back by the police station, while Tomashevsky was pointing him out. Bohr was later arrested and pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct. He was sentenced six months probation. Then, on a cold February evening in 1981, less than a year. After Bohr's disorderly conduct conviction, he and his brother attempted to kidnap a young woman. According to the police report, Bohr and his brother John followed Catherine Schmidt to her apartment complex. Bohr then approached Schmidt and asked, quote, Can you help me find someone? Oh, you're not who I thought you were. End quote. Then Bohr grabbed her around the neck and tried to drag her to his car while his brother John sat in the driver's seat, ready to speed off. And here's what Boar's brother John remembers about that night.
5: Yeah, I really don't know what the subject was about or what he was up to. I know he was following this one person and pulled in where she was and um, just went out and asked her, you know. I'd a to the car.
2: On top of interviewing Bohr's brother John, John O'Brien was able to interview the victim, Catherine Schmidt, about that night as well. Pulled
6: into my space, uh, never saw a car pull in behind me. And as I gathered my things to get out of my car, I closed my car door, and the next thing, there was a man behind me saying, excuse me, can you help me find someone? And the next thing, he had me in a chokehold with his other hand over my mouth, dragging me backwards. And then I saw this vehicle, and I saw a man that was in the passenger seat climb over into the driver's seat, and then he opened the passenger door, folded the seat forward, and at that point, Michael Bohr, which, I mean, I didn't know who he was at that time. Um, At that point, that's when um, he no longer had his hand over my mouth, because, you know I mean, I was fighting to breathe and fighting, you know, just to be able to breathe. And finally, he stopped that, and then I was able to scream And as I was screaming um, and fighting, being pushed into Mm. and forced into this car.
4: Pushed and pulled from the inside, too.
6: And John was inside, his brother, was pulling at my legs. I mean, my legs were in that car. And Michael was still forcing me. And I had, I mean, seriously, it was just my fingertips on the top of that car. That was Mm. the only thing that was that was the last grip that Mm -hmm. I had and um, as all of a sudden John let go of my legs and he told Michael let go of her get in the car we got to get out of here and I don't know what it was I'm assuming that it probably was maybe a light maybe someone turned Mm -hmm. on a light someone must have heard my Mm -hmm. scream and um, at that point, I was able to break away and get away from them.
2: On the same night of the attempted kidnapping, Bohr and his brother were arrested and charged with false imprisonment and battery for what they had tried to do to Katherine Schmidt. Bohr pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three years probation. Schmidt recalls that night as one of the scariest moments of her life and considers herself lucky to have escaped Borer's grasp.
6: The thing that just is so frightful for me is that had this been like a van or, or a larger vehicle, there's just no way because there was... I can't imagine that after they were done with whatever their plan was that night that I would have been brought back full. I don't think I would... <laughs> And it wasn't money because my purse was right next to the car. All he had to do was just pick it up. It was right there. And, I mean, I was just an unfortunate, I was the unfortunate target that night. And I truly, truly do not think that I am the only one. I think I, in my heart, I feel I am the only one that survived
3: you think because of the way they carried it out because it of the
6: way the way they went about it yes. i mean he never i mean they never spoke i mean uh, next thing i'm seeing this guy inside a vehicle you know sl- slide over to the other side and open that door like th- like they knew exactly um, what they were going to do yeah they knew exactly
4: and michael who had you and the was punching you too he
6: right? was yeah. punching me i my skirt was ripped all the way up to the waistband it was you know like an a-line that was my uniform mm-hmm. my waitress uniform It was just an a-line skirt that had like a small little like kick pleat in the front i mean that's the struggle i mean yeah. i i just s- could grab on pushed off whatever i could Yeah.
3: yeah.
6: i mean w- <sighs> huh.
2: the way Bohr and his brother attempted to carry out schmidt's kidnapping made her believe that this was not an isolated incident.
6: I mean, I truly do not think that I am the only victim. I, I really do not. I, I just, I, I mean, now I feel like I'm probably the only victim that ever survived. Yeah. That's what, that's the way I, I'm, that's how I would sum this all yeah. up. Because I don't think I was meant to survive that night if it wasn't for the grace of god if it wasn't for my guardian angel because i mean it, it that person's evil he is evil and and i i pressed charges at i mean thankfully because they were driving that vintage mustang yellow mustang in the yellow mustang blue interior. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sorry, that memory is in my head. Wow. It will never fade. Um, wow. But if if it wasn't for the fact that they drove that car and the the quick reaction of the Milwaukee police, yeah. that they were able to find that car and that, you know, I was able to identify them. And I said, yes, I would press charges because my biggest fear is that they they would, they would have been able to abduct someone a little bit smaller than me mm-hmm. and not as strong as me like that. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no doubt in my mind. In
2: 1983, IBM transferred Bohr to its corporate headquarters in Beacon, New York. Leaving Milwaukee and their troubled past behind, Bohr's wife hoped things would improve, but her hope quickly faded. Before long, she found out for herself the extent of Bohr's abuse of their daughters. His wife and daughters eventually left Beacon and Bohr never to look back. Then, in 1989, Bohr's ex-wife filed a police report citing all of the abuse Bohr inflicted on his family. The report was one of the most disturbing and horrific things I have ever read, and for ethical reasons. I'm not going to read you the entire report. Most of the names on the report have been redacted, but here's an excerpt that I believe sums the report up. Quote, Blank stated she confronted Michael at that time and that Michael threatened to hurt her and the kids, so she stayed with him and stayed very close to the girls, making sure that they were never left alone with Blank. End quote. Imagine... If you dare. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold tight. Let's. A podcast so shocking. No, it's not that shocking. It's just so disturbing. Now you're just being dramatic. That it will chill you to your very core. I don't. Have you even heard the show? There's no escaping. I mean, there is. The horrible consequences of. Just press pause, but don't do that. Great day. My name is Byron McCoy, and each week I join my friends Sam and Kelly, where we talk films, monsters, the paranormal, and pretty much all things frightening. From time to time, we talk with like-minded specialists, directors, actors, cryptozoologists, conspiracy theorists, but whether it's the human terror of serial killers and home invasions or the extra-normal phenomena Kelly covers in her Cryptids and Conspiracies segment, if it bleeds, hacks, stabs, chops, summons, sacrifices, abducts, or bites, it is Fright Day. Every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at FrightDay.com. FrightDay.com. Stop it. You're scaring them. Sorry. Michael Bohr befriended a co-worker of his at IBM, Manny Rios, who would also become his tenant in a duplex that Bohr owned. Rios lived in one side and Bohr lived in the other. According to an affidavit by Rios in 2015, Bohr struggled with drug addiction. Quote, Michael was heavy into cocaine, and I witnessed him using cocaine many times. At some point while he was working at IBM, he was required to enter a treatment program at a hospital called Craig House Center in Beacon, New York. He was eventually terminated from IBM because of his drug use. Quote. While at the Craig House for addiction, Bohr met a woman who was working as a nurse. And again, for ethical reasons, I will not be disclosing her name. Bohr introduced the nurse that he had met to Rios, and the two ended up becoming friends. Rios also said that Bohr continued his drug use after his treatment. On the weekend of May 25, 1985, the nurse needed a place to stay and asked if she could stay at Rios' apartment while he and his roommate were both out of town for the weekend. Rios had no issues letting her stay for the weekend. And she had also invited one of her girlfriends to stay with her. Rios apparently left a note for Bohr, letting him know that the nurse was staying for that weekend. And what you're about to hear is an exclusive, never-before-heard interview with this nurse, conducted by John O'Brien.
0: And I was friends with Manny and the other guy, and they were going into the city that weekend and let me stay in the apartment. It was their apartment, Manny's
4: apartment,
3: right? It was their
0: apartment, yes. Okay. And... You know i would go over there and visit with them you know regularly they were my friends
2: little did rios know his apartment would be the scene of a brutal attack while he was away the memory of friday may 25th 1985 will forever remain with the nurse who bore met at the craig house
0: i just wish i could remember exactly what Mm happened like what happened to me
2: according to the nurse After having locked all of the doors that night, she went to sleep, only to be woken up in the middle of the night by a man who had simply let himself in.
0: He asked me, you know, because my girlfriend Linda was going to come down. She was going to Syracuse University at the time, and it was a long, like, Uh Memorial Day or some kind of a weekend. Um, And she was supposed to come down, and we were going to go hang out together. And um, she didn't come down. And Mm -hmm. what I remember is him standing in the doorway asking me where my friend was. And I was in the bed. It was dark. And all I saw was a silhouette of him. And it looked like he had like a briefcase in his hand. And he said, "Um, well, where's your friend? And I said, "Um, she's not coming. Um, He said, "Um, that's too bad because I wanted to have her too.
2: That's one of the last things the nurse remembers from that night. Police arrived on the scene at around 3.45 in the morning and found her naked in a pool of her own blood on the bed. Originally, police reported the nurse dead on arrival, but she survived. Who knows what would have happened if police hadn't shown up when they did, which leads me to my next question. Who called police? Did someone witness what happened? Or hear some sort of disturbance coming from the apartment? Well, according to the supplementary police report, Michael Bohr called police. This report states that Bohr got home at around 3 in the morning and went to bed, but he heard someone moaning in the apartment next door, which he owned. According to the report, Bohr went and checked it out. Quote, "...when he went to the apartment, the door was locked." So he opened it with his key. When he entered the bedroom, he found the victim lying in a pool of blood on the bed, nude, at which time he covered her up with a bedsheet. When he asked her what happened, she stated, "I don't know." Mr. Bohr then telephoned for an ambulance, end quote, "In 2015, a couple of Oswego County sheriff's investigators interviewed two of the Beacon police officers who worked on the case.
4: Uh, I believe it was Charles Lucy who responded. And uh, ultimately, they found a female unclothed in her bed and had been assaulted. Uh, there was, at the time, my understanding, there was no signs of forced entry. No, no. Uh, the apartment wasn't wasn't didn't look like there was a struggle or anything like that. And it was unusual that she had such a severe injury. And, and none of that
5: was uh, none of that had happened.
2: So whoever did this, unlocked the door and let themselves in, committed this attack, and then let themselves out, locking the door behind them. Also, according to the report, the apartment was equipped with an alarm, but that night, the alarm never went off. Some things about that night just never really added up to make complete sense of what happened. But in the report included what police found as evidence from the attack. I want to warn you before reading this. Some people may find this to be disturbing and graphic. Quote, I stayed at scene with Sergeant Lucy to await detectives arrival. Along with Sergeant Lucy, we checked room victim was found in for any other evidence. At that time, we noticed a large amount of blood on the pillow. At that time, located on the floor. Large amount of blood on bed sheets. A clump of hair on the bed And blood and a clump of hair on the wall. Also noticed was a blood handprint on sheets. And handprint on the wall. And several drops of blood on the bookcase directly next to the bed. End quote.
3: In the bloody palm print that, do we know what happened to that? Was it lifted? I can talk
1: about that. I I accompanied uh, uh, Kevin Allison, who was a detective at the time. I also was a detective. He asked that I accompany him to the crime scene because he wanted to do a bit more searching for any, uh, any evidence that might have been overlooked the first time. <coughs> we went in, and uh, Kevin found a, a, a patent print mm-hmm. on the wall, uh, it was a fingerprint, it was a, I don't believe it was a palm print, oh, okay. but it was a fingerprint, uh, patent print, print being, it was there, it was in, in a fingerprint in blood, I okay. was uh, present when Kevin lifted the print, sent it off to the FBI for uh, analysis. FBI called Kevin at Beacon Police Station and basically accused Kevin of planting that print. It wasn't planted. I was there when it was lifted, uh, but what the FBI had said, it had some type of a, a halo effect to the print uh, that, in their experience, meant it was a planted fingerprint. Kevin secured the print as evidence. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to it. Uh, you know, went into the evidence locker. After that, and we never know
3: who came back to anybody
1: or came back
2: to Mike Bohr. Oh, did it? Yeah, Bohr put himself at the scene of the crime when he said he found the victim and called police. But Bohr was a suspect in this attack, according to police. But apparently, because the FBI thought the fingerprint could have been planted, the police disregarded the print. Bohr wasn't out of the picture yet, though. The nurse remembered. Who had woken her up that night? Quote, I remember being awakened by Michael Bohr. I recall seeing Bohr standing alone holding a briefcase or a box. I can't recall exactly what he had in his hand, but he was holding something. He asked me where my girlfriend was, and I told him that she was not coming until Saturday or the day after. I vividly remember him saying, That's too bad. I wanted to fuck her too. I was terrified and I tried to run through the house to get away from him. Certain memories of that night are still vivid in my mind. For example, I remember hiding under a cabinet and I can still see the spray can lid on the floor near where I was hiding. The nurse was beaten with a hammer so severely that police who responded to the call were surprised that she even pulled through
1: i'm surprised she bounced back because of the uh, at the time the injuries that she sustained there was some doubt as to whether would she have any uh any memory she would gain her memory or she'd even be able to walk Severe
4: beating in the head with a hammer and at the time there was a the hospital in beacon was a hospital that was there for you know 100 years highland hospital and they transferred her from there to poughkeepsie you know, vassar hospital because the injury was was so severe
2: due to the severity of her injuries the nurse could not remember anything after hiding under the cabinet. When the nurse arrived at the hospital, she was responsive and able to answer some questions asked by investigators. According to Bohr's interview with police, she had a husband and was in the middle of a divorce. Bohr told police her husband was abusive towards her. But when police asked the nurse about her soon-to-be ex-husband, she said, quote, my husband no, he didn't do it, end quote. That's the only information that she was really able to give police at that time. Sometime in the early morning hours, the nurse's mother arrived at the hospital, anxiously awaiting any news about her daughter's grave injuries. According to her affidavit, she remembers her daughter identifying her attacker to police hours after being attacked. Quote, I remember she was questioned by investigators, and she explained that she recalled Michael Bohr standing in her doorway holding a briefcase. I know the police took his briefcase and examined it, but they never found anything, end quote. quote. at one point, my daughter was prepared to give a statement identifying Bohr as her attacker, but she could not remember being hit, and the case was declared circumstantial and never prosecuted. The nurse remembers being assigned security while she was at the hospital because investigators feared that whoever attacked her might try and come finish her off.
0: My mom said I was in, like, security watch or something Mm -hmm. um, because they were worried, you know, that somebody would come back and do something else to me.
2: The nurse's mother also remembers the bone-chilling moment when she received a call she never expected. Quote, While my daughter was recovering in the hospital, Bohr called me at home and scared me because the police thought he was the one who attacked her. Bohr questioned me about my daughter's condition and whether she was conscious. When I hung up, I immediately called the police and they put a trap on my phone. Then I called the hospital in a panic because I thought he might try to finish her off if he knew she was awake. I requested that her name be removed from the patient list and they put a security guard at her door, end quote. To this day, that case remains unsolved, but the nurse was able to put that horrific attack behind her and move on with her life. I left a voicemail for the Beacon Police, hoping someone there could walk me through the investigation, but this happened in 1985, so it seems that some questions might remain unanswered. The Beacon Police, though, did get back to me, and this is what they said after looking over the original police report.
5: All right, so this is great. So I'll just, uh, I'll just pass this on to my bosses. And, uh, and maybe we can get this thing reopened.
2: I'm still waiting for the Beacon Police Department to call me back with more information on that. But looking back at Bohr's past, it seemed clear the type of person he is. And Bohr's coworker, friend, and tenant, Manny Rios explained everything he learned about Bohr in his sworn statement. Quote, Bohr is a violent man, particularly towards women. I once witnessed him throwing a knife at a clock that was mounted on the wall in his kitchen. He did this after he told me that some woman had angered him. The more I got to know him, I realized he was a violent sexual pervert, which is why I stopped hanging out with him. End quote. I reached out to Rios to get a better understanding of what he knew about Bohr, but he didn't answer, so I left him a voicemail. According to John Boer, he and his brother Michael sold marijuana to supplement their income. John O'Brien conducted several interviews with John Bohr, who was living in a nursing home in Pennsylvania. He were selling marijuana there? Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. It he,
4: was, yeah, it was this place. Thank you. Yeah. So did he get you involved in that, selling marijuana? In a way, yes. Yeah.
2: Bohr was eventually fired from IBM because of his continued drug use. And around 1990, he and his brother John moved to the small upstate New York town of New Haven. The duo continued to sell drugs, and Bohr would go to the local watering holes to network and grow the business. It was a small blue-collar community, a place where many men would turn to steel scrapping for money, then take that money to the bar and wash down a long day of work with an ice-cold beer. Spinner's Bar & Grill is where Michael Bohr met a scrapper nicknamed Thumper, who admittedly smoked weed and partook in other narcotics, like cocaine. It wasn't long before Boer began to lose trust in his brother John, believing that he took too many risks that would expose their drug trade. Bohr was right to be concerned with his brother's risky behavior. John was caught driving a green Ford with switched plates and with no driver's license. During the stop, an Oswego County Sheriff's deputy smelled alcohol on John, but he was able to pass the field sobriety test. Police also discovered a warrant for John's arrest for marijuana possession in Milwaukee, but he was not extradited for that. The police towed his car and left John on the side of the road. This was the exact kind of situation that Bohr was trying to avoid. Eventually, John grew tired of his brother's attitude towards him. John said he left New Haven in 1994 and never spoke to his brother Michael again. John's leaving didn't really bother Michael Bohr, as he was able to forge new relationships in his new home. Always looking for new ways to make some scratch, Bohr found himself driving a 1987 black GMC pickup truck with a trailer, perfect for lugging scrap steel and junk cars. Bohr began scrapping at the Crosby Hill Junkyard in Fulton, New York. Crosby Hill was the spot where most scrappers processed their loads, and through scrapping, Bohr also met a man by the name Roger Breckenridge. Breckenridge was good friends with James aka Thumper Steen, and according to an old business partner of Bohr's, he embraced his new relationships with Steen and Breckenridge.
5: Well, Steen was a big-time cocaine dealer and also marijuana. Yep. Boer used to buy marijuana and cocaine off of Steen in bulk, you know, like large quantity, and he would sell it to other people. Okay. But like, like Steen was basically a wholesaler. Michael Boer was buying it off of him and then selling it, you know, splitting it off into smaller quantities. So, and then paying back what he or however else he did it. So how often? I left the company when I found out he was selling shit inside computers and inside computer parts. He would have people come in with empty computers and they leave. The computer would leave probably about a few pounds heavier. Wow. Just go right out the door.
3: So it it was a useless computer just filled with drugs. What's that? So the computer was useless. It was just filled with drugs, right? The...
5: Basically, yes. Yeah.
3: So, but he, so Steen would be there. You'd see him at the store, or no? Would Would you see?
5: I had seen Steen at the store a few times. Okay. Um, while I was working there, um, I do know of Roger Breckenridge. Um, he would also come back and forth. Him and Steen always hung out together. They're actually um, their family, I believe, somewhere along the line. Yep.
2: Boar's business partner also mentioned that he was especially interested in Heidi's disappearance.
5: Yes, he did. When I first started working there, he had a tack board up, like a bolted cork board that was like right up in between the big bay window and the front door. He had a little table in the front of that. It had a coffee pot and stuff house for customers, some snacks like whatever for kids or whatever, candy, stupid shit. Um, he did have a tack board up there. It said missing persons across the top, and the only picture that he had up there was of Heidi Allen.
2: From the very beginning of Heidi's disappearance, Bohr found himself wrapped up in the case. Bohr clearly had a troubled past, but Oswego County sheriffs had no clue about it. Bohr was doing his own investigation into Heidi's disappearance, and in his investigation notes, he shared what he thought of the investigators working the case. Quote, the following are names from persons affiliated with businesses and or organizations within the central New York area, end quote. The first two names on that list were Chief Shithead and Chief Chicken Shit. Directly following those two names, Bohr wrote, quote, Investigator A. Michael C. Bohr, started 11 a.m. 3 1994 End quote. Now, Bohr clearly meant 0403 1994, because that was when Heidi was abducted. Bohr, though, was off to an extremely early start in his investigation. He started investigating hours after Heidi came up missing. To give you perspective on that timeline, remember, police didn't even question Richard Thibodeau, who called in with information until around 11 a.m., the morning of her disappearance. Bohr's investigation notes included his own suspicions, a glossary of characters, and a bunch of unorganized ramblings. His notes were riddled with misspellings and grammatical errors. But that's not what was important. The important question was, why was he investigating this? Why did he care so much about this one particular missing person? Maybe it was because Bohr felt a personal connection to Heidi. After all, he lived just a half a mile from the D&W convenience store where Heidi reportedly made him sandwiches on a daily basis. Or maybe there was a more ominous reason that he was following this case so closely. Just months after Heidi went missing, an FBI profiler was assigned to the case. His name was Clint Van Zant. Van Zandt would later go on to accurately profile the Oklahoma City bomber. I have tried reaching out to Van Zant multiple times, but I have not heard back. Van Zandt put together a profile of characteristics that the police should look for in a suspect. Here's a recording of Van Zant explaining the profile to Dateline reporter Dennis Murphy.
1: The person who committed this is somebody who was really interested. I mean, the community was interested in the case, but this is more interest. Obsessed. Could not let it go. This is somebody who will be saving newspaper articles.
2: Here is exactly what the official profile put together by Van Zant said. Quote, the kidnapper will typically be preoccupied with media accounts of the crimes and will typically interject himself into the investigation. The reasons for this are twofold. One, to establish an alibi for himself and distance himself from the crime. Two, to provide false leads to the police and determine for himself the extent of their investigation. End quote. Well, we already know that Bohr wasn't shy to share his theories of what happened to Heidi with the police. Listen to Bohr being interviewed by the Oswego County Sheriff's Office.
3: So you're telling me you think your theory is that Thibodeaux were set up as a conspiracy because he took over this guy's drug territory? No, the
4: people didn't like him that like, he was supposed to be distributing to. Oh, okay. He was a fuck-up.
2: Gary was. He was, was. Drunk. Gary? yeah,
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mark was a local guy that was very likable. You know, I mean, he had the charisma mm-hmm. that, that people were attracted to. Right. Gary was a jerk. Okay. So, um, I mean, there's so much. Right. But, that's, that's where I, I came from. The direction that I came from, I was living at, at the hotel there in, in New Haven.
3: Which one do you know? Spinners. Spinners? Uh-huh.
4: And, um,
3: so, so you were living right down the road during her, when she got.
4: Oh yeah, uh-huh. she's the same age as my my daughter. So I it hit me real bad. What and, do you mean it hit you real bad? Well, I was upset that a young girl in the community was, you know, taken from us. So.
3: So what'd you do about that?
4: I I continued hanging out in the bars, kept kept my ears open.
3: Right. Did you ever talk to the police about it? you ever talked to police back then or during that since then about everybody ever questioned you about it um
4: yeah one time who was that they brought me into the station and questioned me was um um wheeler bobby wheeler bobby wheeler and his partner what was that? Who was that? And they brought me in the interrogation room, and I don't know, y'all sat around and stared at me for the most part.
3: Yeah, what did they ask you?
4: Asked me if I was with DEA. Right, were you? No. Oh,
3: no, you weren't working for the FBI or the no, DEA? I just great. kind
4: of snickered and said, uh, just consider me a, a concerned citizen. To find out where Heidi
3: is. So they thought you were on the job and they were asking you what you were doing? Doing all this investigation on your own? Is that why you were in there? I think so. It wasn't because you it were a suspect? A... Were you a suspect? No,
4: I wasn't a suspect. No? No.
3: So, why would they... so they're asking you if you're DEA. Right. Would you
4: tell them? Of course. Well I, said, I said, well, I didn't say no and I didn't say yes because I didn't trust them
2: there is no evidence that suggests either Richard or Gary Thibodeau were ever involved in selling drugs. Gary Thibodeau sat in prison, having lost any hope he had at the chance of an appeal. But outside of those prison walls, strange twists in Heidi's kidnapping started coming to the surface. Remember Heidi's bracelet that mysteriously ended up in Missy Searle's mailbox in an unaddressed envelope? Well, it just so happened that Michael Bohr wrote about a bracelet in his handwritten notes from the case. Quote, bracelet behind the seat of the vehicle. Real good hide. End quote. What vehicle is Bohr referring to? Police searched Thibodeau's van, which they claimed to be the van used in the kidnapping, multiple times, inside and out, and never once found a single trace of Heidi. And it's not like the van had been cleaned out before the police searched it. Remember what the juror from Richard's trial said in the last episode?
4: They said that they cleaned up the truck and they couldn't find any hair or anything else in there. They could have grew potatoes in the back of that truck. It was so filthy and shit. And not to find any hair or skin or anything else in there. Everything they said was just bullshit.
2: Also, how did Buller even know about the bracelet? Missy Searles, who found it in her mailbox, did not report it to police when she found it. How could the bracelet have even ended up there? Remember what John O'Brien said last episode about Missy finding the bracelet? Well, I cut the last part of what he said out the last time. Here's what he said.
4: Uh, well, the only way it could happen is if one of the kidnappers decided to, to give it back to her and... Um, The story that Missy tells is that soon after the kidnapping, she was at a bar where her sister Shaughnessy was the bartender talking about, of course, the kidnapping of Heidi. And uh, Missy mentions the bracelet. She said the bracelets must be with her. It's it's not anywhere to be found. And who's in the bar with them? Michael Bohrer.
2: John O'Brien and I have been trying to track down Michael Bohr. Since November of 2019, we have followed several leads about where he was likely living and where he was likely hanging out. Our search led us to an RV park in Pulaski, New York, but the owner of the park said no one by the name of Michael Bohr was there, and there were no RVs matching the description of Bohr's last known RV. So that was a dead end. Our search also took us to the local Burger King where we heard Bohr would sit in the parking lot to use the Wi-Fi, but no one there was able to clearly identify him being there. The staff, though, kindly printed a picture of Bohr and hung it up in the office. They said they'd contact me if they see him, but I haven't heard from them. We also spoke to an old friend of Bohr's, who told us he now lives in Alabama somewhere. Whether or not that's true, I can't say. But his friend told us the last time he spoke with Boar was around Christmas of 2019.
5: He's still down in Alabama. So that's okay. That's all I know. Yeah. The way the way that other people see him up here.
4: Yeah, someone saw him um, parked outside the Burger King in Pulaski a couple months ago. Uh, we're pretty sure it was him. Uh, I, I didn't yeah. see him, but it sounds like it. Yeah, I didn't see him.
2: Was this one giant coincidence? Or was there more to the story than what the Oswego County sheriffs were letting on to the public? Nearly 20 years after Heidi's kidnapping, a woman tried calling Randy Bianco, claiming she knew who kidnapped and killed Heidi Allen. Comfort told me that she was killed because
5: she was going to rat in some big guys in the area. Um, and he said that's what happened to rats. He had no... I put this he didn't feel bad about it at all he even brought up Thibodeau and I said don't you feel bad that Thibodeau is in jail for something that he didn't do and he flat out said no he said that's what happens in basically the drug
2: world would this be the phone call that proves Gary Thibodeau's innocence find out on the next episode of Peebles for the People
4: Free man, go. No, won't you let that free man go? No, won't you let that free man go?
2: Stay up to date on Heidi Allen's story by following and subscribing to Peoples for the People on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts.